Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had our friend Ken Schlechter on Boss Builder Podcast, and he talked to us about virtual project management. But, you know, Ken's real gift is the ability to help organizations figure out how to get through changes. And right now, we're in a time, a season, a period, a historical group of a lot of uncertainty and a lot of people that have questions that can't be answered. I wanted to have him back on the show so that we could talk about that. What is the workplace of the future going to look like? What is management going to look like in the future? And you know, what's interesting is Ken really didn't have any answers, but what he did have was a ton of good questions. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. We're going to figure out better questions to ask because you as the boss need to start thinking about how you're going to have answers to whatever questions we come up with so that your organization can get back running efficiently as soon as we can figure out a way to knock this pandemic thing out. So with no more delays, let's go ahead and buckle up because you know what it is. It's time to ride. Welcome to the Boss Builder Podcast. You know, it's the longer I guess I see it the way it is now, the more I think that it's probably going to make profound change. You know, people are, Mm -hmm. they're always, I mean, it's a little different here in the South where I think a lot of people tend to dismiss anything that they hear. Like, you know, I can just hear my father-in-law's voice. I'll never get it. I'll never get sick with that thing. That's all them old people get it, you know, but, you know, aside from that, I think people are just going to naturally have this aversion to, other humans. Um, it's just really strange to see and, you know, whether that changes, but it really begs the question. I mean, are you going to be willing to get on an airplane again? I mean, I always gave people the evil eye when they sat in the middle seat on a Southwest flight. Cause you know, anybody can sit anywhere there. Yeah. It's like the bus, you know, Yeah. but now I'm hoping that people see a middle seat open and like, nah, just leave it, you know, which would be fine for me. If I even fly anymore, I might just drive these yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. My, I don't. I think I don't think I. I don't know if I mentioned my daughter is an Army JAG attorney. Yes, you did. Yes, and she um she just got her orders that she's um in Virginia finishing up her classroom training, and she was told she can drive. She's going to be based in Fort Stewart outside of Savannah. She signed her lease to an apartment and everything, but she was told on May eighth she needs to leave Virginia and drive to Georgia, and then she has to self quarantine for fourteen days before the army base will let her on and georgia's opening up so i was on the phone with her yesterday and she kind of said well at least i can get a tattoo and get my nails done you know because georgia is kind of opening (laughs) yeah that's right it's funny what is the priority in the southern states right it might be like cigarette shops and you know well liquor stores have been open liquor stores have always been deemed essential yeah well i saw and i saw i read the reason for that too you know it's you know, somebody who's addicted to a thing, if you don't get in it, it could be catastrophic, you know, plus there's medical conditions. You can't just quit if you've been drinking heavy and you're addicted to it. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it'll be interesting. You know, we're just kind of taking it day by day here in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, the city's still pretty empty and there's not much going on. I do see more people outside. I mean, the weather here in New York hasn't been terrific. It rained all day yesterday and today it's kind of, you know, in the high forties and kind of overcast. So people 
don't have the incentive to go out, but it'll be interesting. I just read in uh, in California, people were flooding the beaches. Yeah, I saw that on the news too. Well, you know, having grown up in California, if you take away the ability to go outside, you really shut people down. I mean, they're spoiled. You know, if you go to San Diego, if it gets above 75 or below 70, everybody's up in arms. (laughs) But to keep people in a house indoors when the weather's nice, it's just going to be really challenging. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be the same in other states too. I think especially in the East Coast states where you get long winters and as soon as spring, of course, our spring is um, in some states, spring's already turned to summer. But I think to try to keep people indoors or away from venues where they can get out is going to be the bigger challenge. If it was the middle of winter, everybody's holed up inside anyway. You know, we're, we're like, you know, grizzly bears. We just hibernate. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's a- so it's it's going to be interesting to see. But I think, you know, the bigger question is how is it going to affect when people go back to work and that's going to be starting in some places, I guess, as soon as today in, in some format, I'm not really sure. I think everybody's going to have a lot of regulations and rules. I mean, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of good uh, commentary on the last podcast. Oh, we good. did Cause I think, yeah, it's you know, people that I, that read this, you know, send me emails or hear this. And uh, I think just something about it, it just sort of hits people where they're at, you know, how do we make, things run when we're not actually there to make them run. But I think this is going to be the even more interesting episode today. And that's what we want to hear is your take on what's it going to be like when we start to transition back to whatever a normal is going to be new, whatever. I mean, it could be what we had years and years ago, but that'll be new to most people. So just want to get your take on it. So it's interesting, Mac, when I was thinking about it is I have more questions than answers. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's sort of like, I think it's the questions. I think all the companies have to at least ask the questions and what things to consider before they start formulating the what and, and how type of thing. Well, maybe it's, it comes down to it's time for people just to answer their own questions. This weekend, I was just playing around with, because this is what I do when I'm, you know, not in the office doing something as a like a leadership model. And I was thinking about a guy named Millard Fillmore, uh, 13th president sure. of the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's in that category of presidents that are just really placeholders. You know, we think of certain presidents. And what I think of is that the ones that are deemed as, you know, like the legendary presidents all served in a time of crisis, right? So, you know, Millard Fillmore was this little filler, you know, right before the Civil War. And then, you know, he was done and no, no big mark on history. And I think that's where people are going to be today. There's people who call themselves leaders. I see it on my LinkedIn and there's speakers and leadership experts and they all got something to say. Well, most of them have pretty much shut their mouths, uh, save for a few motivational speakers who are in their humble bragging mode saying, I had to cancel 23 speaking events this much this month, which is physically impossible, by the way. Right. Cause unless, you, uh, yeah, unless, I mean, unless you're a big deal. Right. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so I'm just going to do some self-development, but I think what's going to happen now is there's going to be people that step up that you never really heard from before. You never really saw them before. They were just these, you know, they were just numbers. And now they're going to be the ones that are going to come up with the ideas. They're the ones that are going to have answers to the questions that everybody's asking. And so, I think it's an exciting time, to be perfectly honest. I agree. It's, and Mac, I think it's it's the people who have humility. 
and are humble about it and not the ones that are evangelical about it. Yeah. So like you're saying kind of like a quiet strength, maybe? Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be, I'd like to see kind of less is more. I don't have to be talking all of the time in order to convey a message that might be helpful. I think people are too verbose right now, you know, and they get on their soapbox and they start kind of talking and the more words that they say of something will be grasped by somebody instead of just being, you know, a little bit more reflective and having people really think before they talk. I, I, I'm hoping, I don't know if it will, but I'm hoping that's the type of leadership comes out of this because then you know that someone's really thinking about it. And someone, someone admitting that they may not have all the answers. Like when we talk today, I don't have all the answers. I just, I'm just thinking about it. And I'm thinking about what we need to consider. And I'm thinking about what um, impact it has on the human element of all of this. Because I think that's going to be what sets companies apart, is how they help their employees uh, adjust back and, and get them into a work environment that for the most part, most people are comfortable with. Because you're not going to be able to get everyone comfortable with it. And you're going to have to make tough decisions about you know, certain employees of, around this. But how do you really balance all of that in making sure that you know, um, there's, a, there's a new way of thinking around, you know, if you have really good employees, how do you retain them? How do you keep them challenged? How do you keep them you know, happy about what they're doing? So you can continue doing the business that you're doing. Well, I'm actually a little disappointed because I thought you had some answers today. <laughs> so I'm just going to stop the recording. We'll <laughs> go find somebody else who's got something to say. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely correct on that. It's the, that. I mean, in a sense, there's really opportunity, right? Because I think previously you had to have a track record of solving enormous problems for people to look to you. And yet the problems that we're facing today are things that we could not have imagined. And the fact that we still don't even have a clear answer to what we're dealing with and how long it's going to happen and what's going to look like on the other side means that anybody who's reflective and thoughtful and has a different way of thinking is probably going to be the new model. I mean, this could go down in you know textbooks years down the line, too. Maybe there's going to be a new and I guess I was kind of familiar with doing some guest lecturing with my wife, she teaches an org behavior class at Austin P and, you know, the techs had all these, you know, the, the leadership theories, expectancy theory and contingency, you know, stuff I remember from years ago, taking my master's, which are absolutely in my mind, just sort of, they're not really useful now, but is there going to be a new style of leadership that we reflect on 50 years from now? I don't know. We'll call it the Schlechter method or something. Right. It's just like something that they will say there was this crisis and this new form of leadership came out. It was a hybrid of servant leadership and um, whatever it was. But certainly, I don't know. I think you're right. I don't think it's going to be charismatic. It no. won't be charisma. It'd be different. And I think it's also where leaders have to be able to be, like I mentioned, humility is it's OK to make a mistake. It's OK to try something and adjust and pivot. You know, it's it, you want to go in thinking you have the right answer, but you got to be alert and, and read the tea leaves, if you will, to try to figure out if I need to slightly change the direction that we're going in. Because not everyone's going to get it right the first time. And we have to be a little patient. And then we also have to be a little bit um, flexible 
in figuring out how that is. And I think it'll differ by industry. And I think it'll differ by the size of the company within the industry and the type of personnel that you have. And it may even change the hiring practices of who you want to bring in into your company going forward. Yeah. You know, it's funny. When we were talking about this, I was thinking too, and I don't want to delve into politics here because I don't know which way you sit and I don't want to say anything that'll make you hang up on me, but it's just kind of funny how someone with the title of leader can think out loud on a thing and people will actually take that as like, okay, let's go and do that. You know, for example, drinking bleach or sticking a infrared camera down your throat or something. So I think based on what's happened, I think you're right. It's going to be the person that actually is more reflective that tends to, I guess, think before they speak. That's going to be the person we're all going to listen to. Because right now, any voice that we hear that appears to have an answer, when we run in that direction, we seem to hit another brick wall. So maybe we're all going to be a little gun shy to follow the loudest voice. Yeah, we have to take the blindfolds off also. Yeah, well, I think now they've been, I think in a way that this is what's helping too, is that everybody is able to see, wow, maybe the people we thought had answers really don't. And what are you going to do about it now? And I think that's where this is the time where people we never really saw leadership potential in. Because maybe we never even had a clear definition of leadership in our generation. Maybe this is where it's going to happen. A whole new leader emerges now. Yeah, it could be. It could be. So let's think about changes. All right. So when we had you on before, we talked about virtual project management. And we talked about the role of the project manager in many cases is to deal with the psychological aspects of project management, which is your take on it. And this is where you help companies. And so let's talk about changes that have shaped it. So if you were 100 years old today, Ken, what changes would you have experienced in your life when you were born in 1920 versus 2020? Well, um, you've got the telephone, you got the TV, uh, even got from black and white to color TV. Um, You've got a multitude of different things that have caused evolutionary change. I think with technology speeding up, I remember I had one of my grandmothers lived to the age of 97. She died in 2000. And um, I, she never got used to the answering machine, Mac. It was kind of <laughs> funny. She would, she would call up and just say, hi, this is grandma. Grandma. And she would try to have a conversation with the, 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 the tape because she just didn't <laughs> get it. Um, no fault to her own, obviously, but you know, just the technology that evolved for someone who was born in 1920. My father was born in 1932. He loves to tell us the story when they got their first TV, when um, you know the phone started to be used a little bit more. But I, I even go towards what's happened in the last 20 years. I, I remember the first job out of college I had. I shared a computer with somebody. Mm. There weren't. Two, there were two computers, um, or one computer for every two people. You had to share. Um, I remember to boot up your machine, you went to the cafeteria uh, to get breakfast before the machine really got warmed up, if you will. And well, you can still do that if you have a PC laptop <laughs> and have to log into it. My wife's laptop. I thought, good Lord, I'd have my work done by the time you even logged in. That's right. That's right. That hasn't changed. But on a Mac, on the other hand, yeah, you're already working. You're already working. But, you know, I remember I got uh, my first BlackBerry. And all of a sudden, I was answering uh, emails after I left the office. 
Um, before then, you kind of left the office and you didn't really think about work until you got into the office the next day. Or maybe you thought about it, but you weren't acting upon it. And all of a sudden, you know, a new dimension of I'm getting emails now after hours. Do I answer them? Do I not answer them? You know, and I always told my staff throughout the years is you need to set a precedent of how you want to respond to people after you leave the office. Because that's a big change because the the workday expanded from that eight or nine hours to even more. And when you answer an email on a BlackBerry after work, you are inviting that person to engage in a conversation. And you have to be prepared that if you do, an- back then, if you do, an- or even now, if you do answer an email, you're saying, I'm going to actively engage and it's not going to be the only email that you get because you're, you're inviting that conversation. And I remember back when the Blackberries were becoming more prominent, I guess it was the early 2000s, mm-hmm. um, where you had to make that call. And just because your boss emailed you, are you obligated to answer it? Um, be- now, are you now have to mirror the hours that are working of everybody else because of that? And I've told people over the years is you got to think long and hard before you respond to that email at eight o'clock at night. Are you ready for an, a conversation? Be okay with it. And now, if, Ken, you you were actually in a management position during this time, right? Yeah. Where you you had to actually communicate that to your staff then back then? I did. I did. I think you were one of the few, by the way, that I've ever heard that actually set an expectation. That's pretty impressive. Well, I mean, you, you've got to se- you've got to be able to separate because I think if you have employees that can separate they become better employees because they become more appreciative. And then when it comes crunch time, I find that they're more uh, willing to help you out, you know, uh, being more understanding of your staff. And I think with that, um, with that email capability, and now, you know, now we have the iPhones and, you know, I look, I have, I think I have four different email addresses on my phone right now. I have the, the two universities I teach with, I have my company email and I got Gmail. You know, so you're in constant contact. And I've always tried to talk to my staff about how you separate. And one of the questions that you have to do is, I, you know, when someone starts a new job, I always tell them what you do in the first two or three weeks after hours sets a precedent. Because if you start answering the emails, that becomes the expectation. And are you okay with that? And there's nothing wrong with being okay with it. And if that's the way you want to do it, but you have to decide on how you're going to separate your personal and your work life because the the areas become even more and more gray as we go through this and i think even more now with remote and i think everybody and i'm guilty of the same thing is when i break for dinner working remote all the time i find myself walking back into my home office to answer a few more emails when i was commuting uh, I may go back on, but there was a much longer time period, and there would be nights where I didn't. But I think everyone finds themselves uh, where that is, which I think really begs the question when we get through all this, is a typical nine-to-five job still in existence? I think, obviously, for certain things like manufacturing and shift work and things like that, I think there's definitely going to be that, and that, that I think there's a different model around that. but. I find myself over the past six, seven months, um, you know, getting up and maybe doing a little work, then I can go for a run. You know, people look at me in the neighborhood, it's, it's 11 o'clock in the morning, I'm out in the neighborhood running, and they're like, I'm working, I have a little break right now, and I'm afforded that opportunity to 
go do something for myself, uh, both for mental and physical health. But um, the graying of the lines, I think, is going to be a big challenge for companies if they do decide to go, you know, this with this remote model is how do you communicate to people their ex- the expectations that you have of them when that nine to five barrier breaks down? That's going to be a challenge for people because um, human nature is, is that if, you know, someone, uh, someone else is online in the company or my department, I need to be online. And how does management communicate to people that it's okay not to be online all the time and teach them how to separate their personal and their work life? Because I think that's going to be a struggle for people. And it's probably a struggle right now for them. Well, I think it's been a struggle for a lot of people leading up to this, right? Because, I mean, people were talking about this long before we had COVID-19 that I feel like with my remote, especially when your company is a bring your own device or they issue you one. But I think if it's bring your own device, then you, your work is with you no matter where. I don't think that's that was not even settled before COVID-19. I agree. So so we're going to I want to talk about all the questions. We don't have answers today. we got better questions. But what do you think might have happened in the 80s if COVID-19 was here? So in the 80s, I'll just own up to it. I was graduated high school in 82. So I was a very young man in the 80s. And back then there was, I mean, there was no connection with people. If you didn't answer the phone, you were off the grid. But we didn't even talk about a grid back in those days. How would you, how do you think looking back things would have been done then? You know, that's, it's a, it's an interesting question that I've been kind of grappling with it, but life, it seemed a little more simpler back then. Um, you know, there was only one phone in the house and the cord only extended far enough into the laundry room to get privacy. Right. Hmm. Um, I, I think companies would probably have to have at least some people come in. Uh, to keep the business going. And I think they probably have to think long and hard about, you know, who would come in. But if no one is coming in and there is no computers at home to do it, um, companies would stop. So I would think that back then we would have to have had some sort of model where at least a small number of people separated would have to come in or I think things would just virtually stop. What Mac, what do you think about that? I think, I mean, my only context back then was I was in the Navy. I mean, right after high school, I worked one job and then I joined the Navy when I was 19. And there, I guess we were in the mindset that you had to be on call 24-7. So there was really no, I couldn't just ignore the phone if it rang. And in fact, I can tell you my first duty station, I was overseas. And so I was in Australia. We lived out in the community in Navy housing. And the houses did not come with phones. So basically, you could not call your family. You'd have to go to the pay phone and put in these gigantic Australian coins into the phone. And uh, and so my first wife at the time, she just had to have a phone. It was very expensive. So I had it at my house. Well, next door to me was the um, hospital corpsman lab tech. And so I was finding I was getting calls in the middle of the night. And they say, can you go over next door and tell Petty Officer Moore he needs to come in? And I thought, well, this is ridiculous because these calls that come from the clinic are costing me money. It was back when you had to pay by phone. And so I, you know, I told my boss I was an E4 in the Navy and he's like, well, you know, you have to do your part. I says, okay, yes, sir, whatever. But I mean, I think it would have been different because if you wanted to be not found, you would not be found. 
And I think the nature of work was maybe a little bit different back then too. I mean, if you were working, there was some product you were producing, but if I think if you were in a bureaucracy, like a government agency, I mean, what do you do all day? You answer email and go to meetings. There's no product. Yeah. You don't worry about a budget shortfall because if you run out of money, they, they borrow it from somebody else. So I don't know what would happen. I do know this though. There would have been a lot less information available for people because there was no CNN back in the eighties. Uh, in fact, there, I mean, there might've been, but I don't remember CNN really until the Gulf war because then it was on and you know, it was, everybody was tuned in, but we didn't have that. And there was only, you know, three network news channels. So you saw the evening news and that was about it. So I don't know. I think people, maybe people can say in the old days, people were more caring. I don't think they were that much different. That has still been at each other's throat. It just would have looked different. Yeah, I don't know. That reminds me of a story, Mac. Um, when I was 13, I delivered newspapers. And I don't think that occupation for kids exists anymore. No. But I delivered after school. So I always tell my students in the classes that I teach, um, in my ethics classes that I teach, is on Monday afternoon after school at 4 o'clock, I would take my bicycle with a basket and ride over to the back of a Basket Robins ice cream shop. And in the back there was a guy handing out the newspaper. I had about 35 papers on my route. So at about 4.15, I would pick up my newspapers and I would deliver them. And in hindsight, at 4.30, when I started delivering and on Monday afternoon, I was delivering Sunday's news. Wow. So something happened Sunday morning and I wasn't watching the news at all. I, it could have taken 36 hours for me to find out about it, right? Yeah. Now, fast forward to today, if something happens at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, the world finds out at 9.01, maybe 9.02, right? And you don't really know how truthful and how well-researched the, the article was is because everyone can publish something. You know, whereas back in the 70s, I remember um, – the book, All the President's Men, when Woodward and Bernstein were, you know, uncovering Watergate, I, I, I read the book and I saw the movie and I think the editors asked them to, you know, sometimes double and triple check their sources to make sure it was all truthful. So I think there was a little bit more integrity back then as well as to what's being published. But if you think about the news, it took sometimes 36 hours back then to find out what's going on versus today. So I think yeah. if we go back to the 80s, yeah, news isn't traveling as fast back then. Um, and one could argue that maybe what was end up being published, people could rely on a little bit more than they can today. Well, I think, too, you're old enough to have remembered Walter Cronkite, right? Yep. And so, you know, they said he was the most trusted man in America. And I can remember my parents tuning into Walter Cronkite. And it's like, OK, when that guy says something, we believe it. And I don't know what it was about him. Maybe he was like, kind of like, because by the time, you know, he was on the TV with me, he was, he'd be like my grandfather. But I don't know if we even have that today. So part of the ambiguity is we get news thrown at us immediately and immediately there's multiple interpretations. And then we could almost parse it out even further that depending on what channel you're watching your news on, it's already going to have a bias towards it. And if you are one that is, inclined to lean one way or the other, you will take that news and feel even stronger about it. So, you know, I think, I think people would still, 
I think social media gives people a place to be able to voice their opinions more often now. And so, you know, people will say things on social media they wouldn't say to your face. So I think, you know, people, I don't think have changed that much since the 80s. But I think that they just didn't have a place to put it back in the 80s. Maybe that was better. I mean, one could argue that that's, you know, squelching freedom of speech. I just don't think, I think it was always there. You just didn't have a place to exercise your freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there was also less one-way communication back then. Since you didn't have email and social media, you had to actually have a conversation with somebody mm. uh, where I like, I don't think, I don't know if I mentioned this the last time we spoke, but I have a, um, with my staff, I always have a three email rule. Um, when um, you get an email from somebody to answer, ask a question, or you send an email to ask a question, um, if the person responds or you respond, um, never write another third email because you're just going to go down a rabbit hole of all these emails and waste a lot of time. Never a third email. The third email has to be a phone call. Wow. Um, and I've tried to teach that to people because it, it gets the answers so quickly. Because if you think about it, look at some of the uh, audit trail emails that you've had in the past. Let's say, I don't know, two or three months. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at it, you read through it. It probably took you two hours to go back and forth when if you really thought about it, a conversation probably could have resolved that in, I don't know, a half a minute, maybe to a minute. Mm-hmm. So I've always told uh, my staff is never a third email. It's good to, you know, I have a question, you answered it, great. But if I have another question or you weren't clear enough about the answer on that second email, just pick up the phone. I, it's just, it's more personable, it's easier, and it's actually more efficient. Well, we've both been in a world before email. Where you just, I mean, when in the Navy, we had these little, we call them guard mail envelopes. So you'd stick your memo in there and then you'd have the courier take it over to the command and then they'd read it. And, you know, then if there was a question, you pick up the phone, there was really no email. And when you got an email, that was like a, a huge surprise. And then, of course, you're right. When it went mobile with a BlackBerry, did you ever get the phantom buzz on your hip? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yes, I don't know if people can relate to that today, but it's like, was that it? And then you pick it up. And that's why everybody always had their Blackberries in their hand, I think. so. Well, and it's amazing. Also, we spent so much time. All we did on a Blackberry was email, remember? That's it. That's a, that was the only thing on it. Yeah. There was no internet yet. It was just email. Yeah. And I remember the first time somebody told me about an app, I'm like, what's an app? They're like, it's a program. But yeah, Blackberry. Now, how often did you check it? Checked oh, my it. God. I checked it all the time. All the time. You know, I remember my wife saying, and I, I remember days I'd be on the way home from when I was uh, doing a project. I'd be, have it on a steering wheel. I mean, I will say it was a lot easier to type on one of those because it was wider. But yeah. So, I mean, the technology's changed. And today the the crisis is way different. Could, I don't could have never imagined it. There was movies that talked about it. I remember my parents, when I was a kid, took me to the drive. We, were, we used to go to the drive-in. We saw the Andromeda strain. Oh, great God, movie. it scared the crap out of oh, me as did. a little kid. Yeah. I think that was where the um, the old drunk and the young child are the only ones that survived, right? Yeah. It's, it was just creepy, even at a young age. I mean, so today, kids growing up are seeing this, and they're seeing it because they're also seeing their parents affected by it. And the other movie that freaked me out was The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, which I don't know if you ever saw I that. Saw I think I, I saw it. Yeah. And at the end, they, they I, won't, I won't ruin the ending because someone's going to want to go see it. But 
I mean, that was the other thing. When you see all these people who are dying of a virus, and if you don't burn them, they come back to haunt you at night. Like the scene where his wife comes in, God, it scared the crap out of me. Um, so this is, I mean, it's a, it's a fear. I think kids are going to have a fear, but I think adults. So the scenarios that I want to run by you today, yeah. just to get the questions we should be asking, are going to be, let's imagine that there is a virus. By some miracle, it happens in the next like two months. And then we all line up just like we did as little kids to get, I forget what, what shot it was, but I remember lining up at the local high school with my brother, but we all get it. And this is gone by end of August. So September 1st, we schools go back in session and life goes back to whatever it's going to look like now. If that's the case, what are the questions we need to be asking and then somehow figure out the answers to? Okay. Well, the way I, I kind of look at it is, is the first thing I think companies are going to ask, and again, I think it's dependent upon the industry and then the size of the company with that industry, because I think smaller companies will have different challenges than larger companies. But, I, but how far back do we go to where we were when this all started? You know, I know a lot of companies have already had started working a little bit more remote, but, but a lot of companies, especially in financial services, were not so much going to remote so much, but going to lower cost areas. Like I've had, you know, companies go down to Raleigh or Charlotte, North Carolina, where, you know, you're kind of paying 70 cents on the dollar on the, on the salaries and stuff. But what is, what does it look like and how far back do you want to go? So that, I think that's, that's one question. And I think some companies may say, and do an analysis to say, Hey, you know what? I was 85 to 90% efficient with everyone working for remote, you know, I could save a lot of money here in real estate costs. If I'm in New York city, um, do I really need all that expensive real estate? And could I live with being 85 to 90% efficient in exchange for that? And what are the trade-offs that I have, you know, with the, with the cost savings? Is it, is, is the camaraderie and being in person really that important to the, to the work that we're doing? You know, so I think, those are things. And then I think from a consideration standpoint, I mean, I have a laundry list of things um, for it. And I think, Mac, one of the things that we probably have to think about is we come to, to, to September 1st, we may not necessarily be completely done with it, but we're comfortable enough to return to work. So are we testing people as they come into the office? Am I taking everyone's temperature? Um, you know, what what kind of look looks like that. But I think from a, from a consideration standpoint, I think um, the first and foremost uh, the companies I think have an obligation to the mental health and the emotional toll that it's had on its employees. Some people love to work from home. Some people don't like it or can't, you know, how, okay. what, what is that? What does that mean? And, and how did my staff react to having to work remote in the first place? How, how, how did they react to the change? Was there, was there growing pains with that? Um, so I think that's, that I think really needs to be um, addressed. And I don't know if companies need to bring in organizational behaviorists or you know, people who, are, who have experience with this, but that, I think that's going to be a challenge you know, for people. I think transportation, if you go back to the, 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 the cities, you know, Am I going to be comfortable riding on the subway, taking the bus? That's the only way I can get to work. 
If you want me to come in, I don't feel comfortable doing that. How do you deal with that? Because I think the most important thing is people want to be able to not only retain their good staff, but they're going to bring in new people. And I think the way companies react to that is going to be very indicative of how companies uh, retain and attract new talent. Let's, for a minute, let's go back and think about just a person's mindset when this is over with. So, you know, my ex-wife's mother grew up in the Great Depression and she was filthy wealthy. She had married wealthy. And so by the time we got to the late 80s, early 90s, uh, my wife and I were headed for divorce. Eventually, we had two small children. And I remember my youngest daughter, Crystal, running up in the attic, and she wanted to show me Grandma D's toilet paper. And she had hundreds of rolls of toilet paper up there in this very nice house in Newport Beach, California. And, you know, I went downstairs to ask her. And, I mean, she didn't look at me like it was a bad question. She's like, well, you just don't want to run out of toilet paper. But the, the Great Depression had such a profound effect on her mindset when it came to money that even when she had more money than she could ever spend, she still treated that money like it was not going to last. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard stories like that from people who experienced going through the Great Depression, but do you think that there will be a shift in mindset? Even let's pretend, and I think this is, this is tr truly a fantasy that our scenario here, where we go back to work and there's a there's a vaccine September 1st. My gut tells me that there'll be a vaccine next September 1st. I mean, I don't want to, you know, get everybody bummed out, but it's going to be a while. But let's even pretend that things go back to COVID-19 has gone. Do you think there's going to be that kind of effect on people, Ken? I do. I do. I think, you know, um, first of all, I have a, my mom is, was a depression baby and it was the same thing as your mother-in-law. My mother still worries. She's in her mid-80s right now, and she still worries about the money. I think that's just a generational thing. You know, that's why every time you go over there, she just shoves food in your face. If you want to make <laughs> sure that you're, everyone's eating properly. Because she probably didn't eat all that great when she was little. Mm -hmm. um, but I think from I, – I don't think we can ever get over it in the, in the like it never happened. I mean, what – is the handshake going to go away? You know, how are we going to greet people when we see, you know, by, it's always usually by shaking hands. Is that, are people going to be gun shy around things like that? Like, how do you, how would you, well, let me ask you, how do you feel about it now? If you and I were to meet, That's really it's okay good, if you want to say no. No, it's a really good question. Yeah. I would say that down the road, I would be, I would, I would think we would want to go back and need to go back to that human contact again. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm probably not shaking anybody's hands right now, especially living in New York. You know, I go for walks and runs with friends in the neighborhood and we're on the opposite sides of the street right now, you know, type of thing. So I think, but I think that is a real fear that for some people, it may take longer for them to get over that. And the question is, is how do companies handle that? Do you only have, do you have shift work? Do you have people come in the a small amount of people come in from from one one time to another time? Do you have people alternate days? Do you have two weeks in the office and two weeks at home? Um, you know, I think it's really understanding people and what you can't do. I don't think what companies need to stay away from is is to penalize the people who are struggling with getting reacclimated into society. 
I think that would be very detrimental to say, okay, you know what, you're not coming in and you're not comfortable. Well, I could find someone else who can. Yeah. I mean, that's my fear with an economy that's already dicey. I do. I do. But I think you really got to look at, you know, the type of workers that you have and what they have to offer. I mean, I But isn't this, but I mean, doesn't this really go to the character of the person in charge? Let's say, for example, it's somebody like where I live. Ah, that virus, that was just a rumor. That was a hoax. You people are crazy. Versus someone like yourself in New York, where you are right in the middle of it. I mean, what if I was to go up to New York and bring that attitude with me? That would, I mean, that would be a real issue. And then I think you would take somebody from New York to come down here to Tennessee and say, we're going to assemble the work team. Like, you guys really want to come in the office all together? You really want to? Yeah, we've been doing it all along. You know, it's going to be, I think that's, that's going to be an interesting shift too. Yeah. And that's why when we talked at the beginning, there's, there's more questions than answers is I think that just has to be a certain amount of compassion in really working with your employees. And that's why I also think it's going to be different for smaller companies versus larger companies. You know, if you've got a company with tens of thousands of employees, what's their reaction to this going to be versus a company that has 100 employees or maybe only 50 employees? I mean, I think if you're a smaller company, you probably may have a little bit more flexibility because it's you know, it's a smaller number of people to deal with. But once you start having a larger company, like in the tens and thousands, you now have to start relying on the people who are the managers of your company. And just because you're sitting at the top doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who is a manager under you is going to manage it the same way. There are going to be some people who are going to be not compassionate about it. Um, some people that are. I think if you take a look at the dynamics of management in big companies now, is you get a whole array of different personalities and management styles. Some I could, some I don't really care for too much, uh, but they're still um, looked upon within that company as being valuable because they're they're still results driven. You know, so people in the past have I think accepted bad behavior from managers or not treating people with that compassion and dignity because. It's so result oriented. And that's not the type of companies that I really like to affiliate myself with, but I'd be kidding myself to think that they don't exist. Well, I mean, those are the kind of companies when they realize it, they're going to need your services the most. Now, thinking about that, Ken, how is that going to impact somebody's performance review? Because in some places, it's very easy. If it's a production number, you know, like my son, when he worked at Amazon, it was very easy to evaluate people. You simply learn, look at how many boxes they pack. How often are they meeting their goals? But these were not people that, you know, he's, when you have 80 people reporting to, you don't sit down on a regular basis and, you know, aside from chewing on a new one when they're too slow, you don't have that. But now let's think about a company who is now going back into business and they're still going to have people doing a lot of remote work. How will that impact performance management? Well, I, I think that's a, a good question, but I, the way I kind of look at it from my perspective is it's not just the perfor- the performance review. It's the daily interaction that you have with people. You know, when you're in the office, you're seeing people, you're, you have a tendency of maybe getting to know that person a little bit more on a personable level. You get to know them as a human, if you will. Um, and now that you're remote, you really have less, I think, data points on how to evaluate someone. Because, look, if you've got a, a person who's a good worker, but they're truly a good person as well, I think you find out that more about that on a 
on a regular interaction that when you're together. I, I'm, I'm fearful that we're going to lose that connection and then the performance reviews actually become even more objective and result-oriented without realizing how good a manager that person is, how they treat people, how ethical they are. That I think that gets a little blurred, and I think there's going to be a challenge on how to what criteria you're going to use to evaluate someone, how you what the criteria about promoting them is. Um, I think there's um, a couple of questions out there, um, and I don't think we really know what that full impact is. Um, but I think if you ask someone, let's towards the end of the summer, and most people have been working remote, is I would love to ask managers, how how is your staff doing? How would you evaluate them? Um, I think you may get a slightly different answer than the way we were before. Yeah, it would have to be. It would have to be. What about hiring. So I know companies are still doing this. One of our customers, I had a virtual happy hour with a, a buddy of mine at this company. And he told me, he says, we just onboarded 30 new people today. Now, mind you, this entire company is virtual, but they're used to it. They're a technology company. What's hiring going to look like? Assuming, I mean, this could be a show on Discovery Channel, right? <laughs> Life after COVID. So let's assume it's September 1st, and this is behind us. What's hiring going to look like in, from where you can see it? Well, I, I think that if, if the company has decided that I'm going to remain more remote than in-house, and again, that's a big question that companies still have to ask themselves. Where, where do I want to be on that spectrum? But if I'm leaning towards more remote and I'm based in New York, I'm not necessarily limiting myself for the best candidate that ha they have to be in the metropolitan area. If my best candidate's in Chicago uh, or somewhere else in the Midwest or West, why wouldn't I hire them? I, I think you would just have to figure out from a time you know, zone perspective, there may be a challenge, especially if it's the East Coast to the West Coast or New York versus London. But I might have a more larger pool of people that I can choose from if I decide all right, you know what? We're going to be mostly remote, so it really doesn't matter where people are. I've had a lot of really good conversations with independent consultants over the past couple of months in Seattle and California and Texas, and we're all talking about you know maybe doing some work together, and we're not even kind of batting an eyelash about it. We're going like, of course we could do this. Mm -hmm. it doesn't, I don't think it really matters where the people are um, if you want to take it that far. I think it's great. I mean, it's great, especially if somebody – is living in a place where they're just not interested. I mean, I've been in New York several times. Truthfully, I would never want to live there. Never, never in a thousand years. But if the opportunity was there and they says, yeah, Mac, you can go ahead and stay in Van Leer. You've got that remote office. We'll pay you that remote office. I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. And will I make New York salary? Oh yeah, of course. So, I mean, it seems like what an opportunity for talent acquisition if relocation problems are off the table. It is. So, it is. I would agree with that. Again, I think the biggest question that I'm the biggest, I guess the biggest concern that I have is, is if companies decide to stay more remote, how is that human connection going to be capped up? How are, how are we going to make sure that, you know, we have good team building and people feel part of the team and they feel engaged um, and that stuff that we all took for granted, uh, really, when everyone was in the same location. 
um, that I think in the short term, I think can get away with it like we are now. But I think if we're going to remain remote, I, like I said, when I go back to the mental health and the emotional toll, it's really just the how to build the camaraderie and the team building um, when everyone is, you know, remote. Because right, you know, before this, you know, I could do a drive by and have a quick conversation with somebody. Hey, let's go grab a cup of coffee. I walk over to their desk and those little two or three or four minute conversations you have with someone. How was your weekend? How was, you know, hey, I got a quick question about this. Now, are you have, do you have to schedule all those? Do I just, just, I, you know, instant message them, but I'm now not conversing. And once you start typing to someone instead of talking to them, to me, that's a one-way communication. Yeah. And I think we're, we're, we're going to lose that. And I think companies really need to think long and hard about how to, how to deal with that. And like I said, I don't have the answers. I'm just trying to think about what things that we need to consider when we're looking at that new model. And I, like I said, I think it, it depends on the company, the industry, the type of employees that you have. You know, you could make a case that we are actually, in some ways, a little closer to our teams now because we've seen them most of the time in their homes. So if Lisa or Rachel are listening to this, they're going to be mortified. I think I might have shared this with you earlier, but we did a, a Zoom team meeting last Monday morning. And it was early because Rachel doesn't, you know, she's got a young kid, so she likes to do the meetings early. And and Rachel looked like two squirrels got into a fight in her hair, man. It was all over the place. And, you know, they just woke up and I thought, wow, you know, in the old days, you would never show up. But I think we've we've come to a place where we're comfortable. And I think we've seen a side of people that we haven't seen before where people seem more real. And in a, in a way, I think I feel much closer to my team, even though, I mean, I see Lisa maybe once a year. Rachel, I've seen her one time exactly in the two years she's worked with us. But do you think that would carry over into this new normal? We've seen each other. I mean, this is what people try to accomplish when they go on offsite team building, right? You you do trust falls and walk on hot coals in your bare feet together. And we are supposedly going to bring the realness back into our workplace. Do you see that happening with this? You know what? I think you bring up a really good point. And I didn't, I didn't really think of it that way. But yeah, I think you, you may be more accepting of people. And again, that goes into the, also dovetails nicely into the fact that it's not a nine to five thing. You guys are being flexible. You know, you're doing an earlier morning call because someone has a small child and that person is going to be, I believe, more loyal to you because you're showing flexibility and letting them work around other things besides work. So I think it's a really good point to tell you the truth is I, I didn't even think of it from that perspective, which... I, I thank you for that. Just to, you know, start thinking about other things, but I, I think that has a that's a very valid point. Where we well, I, th- I don't know. I mean, it's kind of struck me that I don't know if you watched the NFL draft. I watched it. I did too. I did. I mean, when all that's on the sports channel is the spelling bee from '97, we are thirsty for sports. But it was so interesting to watch the commentators who were all at their houses, and then there was the one lady who was interviewing. Um, I forget who she was. She was interviewing with somebody. Maybe it was a commissioner. But I looked at her and I remembered the 1989 movie Batman with Michael Keaton when the Joker gave everybody money that had this chemical on it. So if they used deodorant or hairspray, they would have this fake smile. So nobody wanted to use soap or deodorant. And they showed the news crew and they had all these pimples and their hair. 
And I thought that's what we've become right now. But what was so interesting is people are commenting about Bill Belichick's dog. And, you know, you see like the one draft pick whose girlfriend grabs his phone and he snatches it back. You see, and the guy with a bathrobe on, uh, Henry Ruggs, I think when he got drafted. But we all saw a sense of humanity from all these people. There's a siren. It must be on your end because we're in Tennessee. Um, but I don't know. I think maybe that's going to just bring a whole new perspective on people. And, and sadly, what it may enforce then is saying, I saw what I saw and I don't look at that person the same anymore. So that could be another downside. Yeah. And I, and I do think that there has to be a certain amount of, you still want a certain amount of professionalism when you're dealing, especially if you're dealing with clients. You know, clients still want to see that that level of professionalism if they can. Yeah. I mean, but I think that all comes down to a company's norms. And maybe if this stays for some length of time, it'll either go to the one extreme where somebody says, all right, when you're going to be on these things, we really need you to clean up. Or it could be the other way. We're just going to be real with each other, which is going to improve our communication. I don't know. Again, I don't think since nobody has the answers, Ken, I think that's why I love having you on because you just have better questions that we need to be asking oh, each other. Well, thank you, Mac. I appreciate that. So I have, I have one more question for you, Ken. Mm -hmm. And uh, so right now, and you are living this right now, right? You have a daughter who's a senior in college. You have a son who's a senior in high school, both of whom have not had that senior experience. Your daughter, fortunately, at least had a high school experience senior year where she could do the prom and the walkthrough and all the special things. But your son is not alone out there and your daughter's not alone out there. And so they're about to enter this world where there are more questions than answers. And so with the gift of being older and wiser, which I was telling my wife this weekend as we were talking to our son, um, the challenge with being old and wise is you're the only one that listens to your own advice. <laughs> But let's pretend it's somebody else's kid. What is the one piece of advice you would give them as they transition into a huge amount of unknown with COVID-19? Well, it's interesting. With my son, you know, we've had to have some discussions with him around, you know, he's 18. He's ready to leave the nest and is really looking forward to going out on his own. And we don't know if the university he's going to be attending is going to be open for him to go to class. You know, he may be remote again you know, like he's finishing up his high school year. Um, so I think both of those, both my, uh, one of my daughters and my son going through that is, is we have to allow them to kind of have a, you know, a grieving and mourning process, you know, because they are missing out on so, so many things that I think it's natural that we have to be understanding that we have to help them and help them out through that process because they don't are not going to have the experiences that other people have had at their age. Um, so that's the first and foremost that we're trying to do. My my middle daughter is actually still up at the university she goes to because she's living on off-campus housing and she'll eventually come home. But, um, you know, the advice that, you know, we try to give them and we talk to both my daughters, the other daughters in Virginia every day is just to keep that connection and know that we're there for them. And that, you know, if they have any concerns, we can help guide them. They're young adults now. Um, so they're not necessarily looking for shelter or anything like that. But I think it's just to know that they have the support and the love that we can provide them and that whatever they need, 
uh, we're going to try to help them out and get through this. Um, and hopefully when we get through it, um, they can start experiencing the things that they deserve to be able to experience. I think that's good. I think it's powerful. I have all the faith in the world. They're going to be fine. I mean, I think back to in World War II, there were 16 and 17 year old kids fighting the Japanese on these islands. And we often dismiss 16, 17 year old kids today as just being hooked on their phones. So everybody's got the capability. And uh, if you were looking for a time to lead, well, it's right here waiting for you. So Ken, it seems to me that a smart company is not going to wing it when it comes to re-entering whatever normal is going to be, that they ought to have somebody who's going to guide them through that. And I've known you now long enough to know that you are a guy that at a minimum, if he doesn't know what he's doing, he's just going to ask better questions. So I'm going to recommend you call my friend Ken. So Ken, how can my listeners find you and start setting up time with you? Because it's going to be like the beauty shop when this is over. There's going to be a six-week wait to go get your hair done. And I think there's going to be about a six-month wait to get a guy like you on board. How do we reach out to you now? Okay, I can be reached at uh, two different avenues. One is my company website, which is kmconsulting.llc. And my email address, which is ken at kmconsulting.llc. Either one, um, you can reach out to me. and I'd be happy to talk to anybody who out there who would like to further discuss um, this topic uh, and or managing projects remotely. Excellent. Well, Ken, thank you for taking time to be on the show today and for sharing really good questions with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Mac. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you in the role and struggling, and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to management. This podcast is just one resource we have. If you check out our website at greatbosstools.com, you can view some other resources we have there. We'd love to have you as part of our courses. If you're listening to this podcast on any podcast app, we'd also appreciate you taking a few moments to give us a review. Positive, of course, it really helps us out. So with that, take care and get out there and make it your goal to be the absolute best boss ever. (laughs) 